You water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for the man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth, and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly in the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. In them the birds build their nests, the stork has her home in fir trees, the high mountains are for the wild goats. The rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. He made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows it's time for setting. You make darkness and it is night. When all the beasts of the forest creep about, the young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. O Lord, how manifold are your works! In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things, both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. These all look to you, to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works, who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have being. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth, and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. We all please pray with me. Lord God, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for opening yourself up to us through your word and through this psalm, and please open our ears as we hear, open my mouth as I speak, to speak your words. We pray in Christ's name, amen. So for those of you who don't know me, my name is Ryan. I serve as an intern here at Grace Town Town, and it's a real joy for me. Hey, it's a real joy for me to be up here in front of you guys again tonight. Um... And sorry, so I know this, this setup is for somebody who's a little shorter than I am, so if you're having trouble hearing me in the back, please just let me know. I'll try and uh, be firm of voice tonight and try and be conscious of the microphone, but let me know in the back if you're having trouble. So for those of you joining us for the first time or maybe the first time uh, in a while, we've been going through the Psalms together for the last few weeks and we will do so for the rest of the month, for the rest of the summer actually. Uh, exploring God's word to us in various seasons of life, his word for us maybe when we're, when we're sad or when we're happy or when we're feeling like praising God or when we're feeling anxious, a word for the various seasons of life. And last week we, we looked at the beauty of God together and we looked at the goodness of being able to gaze on God in his beauty. So it's appropriate that this week we move to a psalm that is about God's beautiful creation about the beauty of God in creation, about the goodness of what he has made. The psalmist gives us 
a comprehensive, he gives us an awe-inspiring view of God's creation here. You know, there are a lot of ways that people in our age and people throughout history have thought about the relationship between God and creation, right? So there are some people who see no reason for God at all. They see no reason to believe in any kind of force other than natural forces working in this world, reducing everything to maybe chance or chaos or natural forces, matter acting under the laws of physics, and that's all that there is. For some people, God exists and he's a creator and he's a great designer and he masterfully created the world to operate on its own, but now that he's created it, he pretty much steps back and isn't involved anymore. Right? So God in this model is like a watchmaker. He skillfully crafts his creation and then he leaves it to run on his own and he backs off because there isn't that much left for him to do. And then for some people... They focus on the unity of everything, and they they see people and animals and trees and plants as all being one thing, and God just being one with all of everything. God is in everything. He is in all of us, and he unites everything, and he is ultimately united with his creation in this model. Now, the Christian view of God is, is distinct from all of these visions. God is certainly a creator, and he did a marvelous job in his creation. He did a wonderful job. But he doesn't just back off now. He's still active in the world. He's still active in creation. The natural forces that govern the created world only have their power because they're rooted in God's character. They're rooted in who he is. Nothing on their own. The world doesn't run itself. God is not one with creation. He's not dependent on anything outside of himself, so he can't be united with his creation. Creation in the Bible is a canvas. It's a canvas for God's glory. That's what the psalmist sees here as he looks out at the natural world and is drawn into praise. He describes God carving out streams and rivers from the mountains so that water may flow down into the valleys. They flow from the mountains down and, and give its sustaining power to all creatures that need it. The valleys are are brought to life under under his care. Plants and trees spring up out of the ground as God tends to them. We might be tempted to think of donkeys as lowly animals, but God does not forget his creatures. He gives them water enough to drink and plenty to spare. The birds flock to the trees and sing among the branches. God breathes his life into them, and then he says, let there be music. Billions of creatures in the sea, from the ones that we can't see to the ones that we definitely can't miss, the Leviathan, this giant sea creature that we're not really sure what exactly they're pointing to in the ancient world. But all of these wait on the creator, the same creator, for their provision. Even the heavens are in his care. The sun and the moon get their marching orders from their maker and they tirelessly, daily, obey his design for them. When creation moves and breathes and sings as God intended it to, it is a sight to behold. And it points us back to a loving, to a beautiful, and ultimately to a joyful creator. And that's what the psalmist is doing here. One of the qualities of nature that jumps out right away 
as we read through this psalm is the rich diversity apparent in the world. There are creatures who occupy the high places of the mountains that are very different from the creatures who live in the valleys that are different from the birds of the air. Mountain goats and birds could never change parts in God's creation. There are plants that serve as food and energy for people. There are plants that grow tall as trees and provide shelter and home for the birds. The land is full of different landscapes and environments. And even the mysterious sea, teeming with its many different life forms, is full of a great variety of creatures. Daytime and nighttime exist in this constant cycle as the world changes on a daily basis. And people have a part to play in this creation too. The biblical pattern of human beings of work and rest is an important part of God's created order. During the daytime, we work and cultivate the things that God has prepared for us. Just as it has been since the beginning of time, since this beginning of interaction with people, all the way back in the book of Genesis. But our part in creation is still limited. There comes a time when we rest, and when other creatures take over and perform their duties, and work and serve in their own capacities. All things have their place in God's created order. Every creature occupies its own special and created solely for them sliver of creation. And in that sliver of creation, they exist to serve their God. There's abundant diversity in the created order, but there's also unity. Each element in creation is dependent on something else, unlike its creator, who's not dependent. Rock badgers are dependent on the rocks for shelter. Birds depend on the trees for the safety of their branches. Trees are dependent on healthy soil in which to grow. We are dependent on crops and on livestock and on water. And all living things depend on that water that God has graciously sent them throughout the earth, through the channels that he's formed, the rivers and the streams that he's formed. The whole of the created system is rich in detail, but everything from the seemingly small and insignificant parts to the mountains and valleys and oceans is intimately connected and intimately created to be with other parts of creation. The psalmist here is, is taken aback by the beauty of it all, by the intricacy of this system, and by the care that it takes the creator to maintain what he has made. What we see here is a glimpse into what the natural world looks like when we view it through the lens, through the window of God's goodness and of God's grace for the world he has made. Do you doubt God's love for creation, for this world? Do you doubt God's love for his creatures? Do you doubt his love for you? The psalmist gives you this song of praise to renew your love for your creator, to spur you on to praise as he looks out at the created world and describes what he sees, through this process, he tells us first about God the Creator, the most important part, but then he also tells us some important things about how people should interact with the world that he has created. If we had read verses 2 through 9 of this psalm, we would have read a very lyrical and poetic vision for what it looked like when God created the world. These verses describe God establishing 
mountains and seas. And then he separates them one from another, placing boundaries around the waters that they cannot cross. God's power is immense in these verses. It is clear that he is the ultimate creator. He is the first cause that sets the world in order. He does it skillfully. and He's deliberate about it. But the focus of the psalm comes in, comes in God's continual acts of creation. God's role as creator does not stop once he has made the world and set it in order. No, he's not a watchmaker. He doesn't set everything up and then just leave it to run on his own. He sets the world in order and then he cares for it. The image of God that we get here is of a gardener, not a watchmaker. So my wife Hannah uh, loves plants and she loves to garden. And our apartment is full of plants of many different varieties. Every possible ray of sunshine that comes through any open window has at least one plant in it, probably more. It's a beautiful thing. Our windowsills have ferns and succulents and herbs. We even have a little bonsai tree. <laughs> and a couple of months ago, she asked me, you know, if I were ever to go out of town for a couple weeks for something, would you know how to take care of all these plants? Now, I love the plants, and I am very blessed by her gardening ministry in our apartment, but <laughs> I don't really have a green thumb. But as I'm looking out, I'm thinking, like, this can't be that hard, right? How different could it be for each one? So I go through them, and I'm like, well, you just, you just give most of them, what, like a cup of water every few days or something like that? Or no, wait, that, that light green one over there is a little different. I know the succulents are a little weird. What do we do with those? Who knows what to do with this little bonsai tree? And all of a sudden, it becomes very clear to my wife that, my goodness, no, I need to educate him on our plants so that they do not die. And she has this knowledge of what each one needs. She's this very, um, she's connected with each one of them. She understands how to care for them and how to make them grow and thrive. And that's the image of God that we get here in this psalm. That's the image of our creator, a God who plants seeds and then he cares for them on a cosmic scale. He knows what his creatures need. And he's concerned with physical and earthly things for every part of his virtually endless creation. And he is the one who provides. Will he not provide for us too? When Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, walked among the world, he had to eat and drink too. He had physical needs like we do, he understands what it's like to be a physical human being. He lived in assurance of God's provision for him, even when it didn't seem to be going as maybe he would have desired for himself. But listen to what he says in, in Matthew 6 to his followers. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Look at God's care for the birds of creation, he says. And from this psalm, it's pretty clear that God cares for the birds of creation. Does he care for you any less? Of course not. And then he goes on and says, See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon, the wealthiest and most extravagant king in the history of the nation of Israel, not even Solomon in all his splendor, was dressed like one of these. 
That is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire. Will He not much more clothe you? Now, our, our circumstances might not always look like God cares for us like this, especially if we look around and we see God's provision for people around us in much more abundant ways than maybe He's giving to us. And our psalm is aware of that reality too, and we'll get back to that in a little bit, and we'll go through plenty of psalms throughout the summer who deal with those uh, seasons of life that we all struggle with. But what we cannot miss from these verses, the unmistakable thing, is that nothing that God has created exists in vain. Nothing was made on a whim. Nothing about creation is a mistake. He has set the context in which his creatures live and serve him, and he has done the same for each one of us as well. And he will be faithful to you. He does not forget his people. You are not lower than a donkey in God's eyes. And he cares about your physical needs. It can be easy to maybe think of God in, in too spiritual of terms, right? But look at the care that he has for the physical world in these verses. For what things eat and drink and where they live. Look at how specialized his care is for each member of his treasured creation. Look at how numerous his creatures are. Now he wisely provides for each and every type. And then the truly joyful thing that Psalm 104 taps into, the amazing thing that this psalmist realizes as he looks out at the world, is that God is so much more gracious than he would expect. He's almost surprised by the abundance of God's goodness. He provides for his creation, and he doesn't just give the bare minimum. He provides an abundance. He gives more than we need, and praise God for that. Does he only give us food and water? No. He gives us wine and beauty products even in the verses that we read. He gives us eyes to see the majesty of creation. He gives us ears to hear music and to be affected by it. He gives us taste and smell to enjoy the good gift of his creation for what it really is. He has made the world pleasant and enjoyable for his people. And he gives us the ability and the freedom to actually enjoy his creation. And it didn't have to be that way. The psalmist is all surprised by it. It is an abundant gift of grace that we can enjoy creation. He provides abundantly. He provides more than we need. He does it with joy. After declaring the power of God in creation, the wisdom of God in creation, the care of God in creation. The psalmist prays that God would rejoice in his work. God delights in doing good things for his creation. He delights in providing abundantly for his creatures. You believe that God is obliged to provide what you need? Or do you believe that he does so with joy? That he delights in giving you gifts? Whenever I think about creation or how I've experienced some of the beauty of God's creation, one of the first places that comes to mind is the cottage that my family used to rent up in Cedarville, Michigan, which is in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, just a beautiful part of the world. And when I close my eyes and think about it, I can, 
I can still go right back there in just a second, right? Like, I see the lake out to the south of the cottage, looking at it from the back porch of the cottage. I see the reeds growing in the shallows. I see the dock off to the right, that little peninsula that sticks out over the western part of the lake. And hopefully we all have some place like this in our lives. Maybe it's the beach or the mountains. Maybe it's your childhood backyard. Maybe it was the woods behind your house growing up. But whatever place it is that you get that joy from, God takes joy in that place too. And he enjoys it even more than you do. He takes joy in the abundant goodness of his creation. He wants his people to as well. God shares the love with his people through his created world. He abundantly provides for our physical needs through crops and livestock and water and wine. And just as the psalmist opens and closes his meditation on the created world with praise, that's God's desire for his people too. That his joyful giving would be sent back with joyful praise. God is our provider in creation, but he has also revealed himself to us through his creation. The reason we find creation beautiful, the reason we find it good, is because of the goodness and beauty of its creator. Whatever is good and beautiful about creation is only good because it bears his mark, because it reflects that goodness and beauty in him. We learn about the faithfulness of God from the constancy and stability of nature. The same forces that drove the world 3,000 years ago when the psalmist was writing are still at work today. Rivers are still flowing to provide us with water. Mountains are still tall. Trees still grow tall. The sun still rises in the east every morning. We learn about the majesty of God from the majesty of creation. Sometimes if we get caught up in our own little worlds, we can shrink God down to be just the God of our own lives. But it's impossible to have a small view of God when you look out at a mountain or at the ocean as a storm rolls in. Let alone when you look through a telescope at planets and stars that are far beyond our reach and know that they are just as much a part of God's created order as the small things of this world. And the Bible is full of creation imagery to teach us about God and about ourselves. In the book of Job, after God patiently uh, listens to Job and his friends, um, complaints to him after Job goes through just a terrible time in his life, God lovingly sits him down and he walks Job over the course of about four chapters. He walks him through his lordship over creation, over every part of creation to remind Job, my plans are bigger than your plans. And then Proverbs 6 offers medicine for people who struggle with laziness. Study ants. Look at how hard they work. Be like them. In the New Testament, one of the primary analogies for what the Christian life should look like, like is a fruit tree. Faithful service to God will bear fruit in this world. Jesus compares people who are listening to his preaching as to different types of soil as they soak in the words that he is saying. There are numerous other examples we could look at, but creation is invaluable for teaching us about who God is and about who we are. 
Creation on its own can never teach us ultimate things about ourselves or about God. But when you combine God's Word in Scripture with God's revelation in creation, there is a tremendous amount of understanding to be had. I think most of the time, for people in this city, uh, the trick is to find the time to actually appreciate creation, right? It's worth the effort according to Scripture. But I know when, when resources and, and time get in the way, it can be a challenge. But wherever you are in God's created world, there is creation for you to learn about God from. There's no park in D.C. that's too small to not have a little bit of God's goodness and grace in it for you to learn from. But take the opportunities to enjoy creation as, as much as we can. There's so much to learn and to gain from God's good creation. And besides just learning from creation, there are a lot of ways that we interact with the created world, especially in our modern context. We have an economic relationship with creation. The products and the produce that God gives to us don't just magically end up in the hands of the people who need it. There are economic processes and there are systems in place that affect how we relate to creation. We have a scientific relationship with nature, and more so today than at any point in human history. We're constantly studying and learning new things about not only our world, but worlds all the way out in the distance of space. We're learning how to better utilize the resources we have, hopefully learning how to be better stewards of those resources in the process. Then we have a recreational relationship with nature. Most of us enjoy doing some kind of activity out hot, outside, whether running or biking or climbing or even just sitting and enjoying creation. There are a lot of ways that our enjoyment and our, our recreation interact with the created world. We have an aesthetic relationship with nature. We find it beautiful. We make art and music that is inspired by the created world. Now, whichever role you find yourself in as you relate to creation, whether it's one of those or maybe it's another capacity, however you work with the created world, however you play in it, however you learn from it, however you appreciate it, creation must always be viewed in the context of its ultimate purpose, and it is about much more than you and me. Creation exists to serve God, it does not exist to serve people. It exists to bring joy to its creator. Creation informs us, it helps us, it provides for us, but ultimately it does not serve us. The world was created to bring praise to God. It was created and it was maintained, and it is maintained, to bring joy to its creator. Now, God, in his wisdom as part of his design, has given us a lot of power over creation. People have a tremendous influence over the natural world in which we live. And the truth is that God's beautiful design of creation, it is tainted. It's been corrupted. You know, the last verse of this psalm that we read might seem a little out of place. It doesn't really go with the theme of praise and the theme of joy that runs through the rest of the psalm, to all of a sudden be praying for judgment over sinful people and for the end of wickedness. But the psalmist understands that sin and evil are ever-present realities 
in the world we live. Even the natural world is affected by sin. Psalmist sees incredible beauty and goodness in creation. He sees God's goodness, God's goodness as he looks out at the world, but he by no means believes that creation is perfect. You know, the reality of, of human sin that impacts every person has also tainted the good creation. And it's tainted our ability to see God in his creation. God established people to have some dominion over creation, but we are not kings. We do not rule over creation as kings. We are charged with caring for God's creation under God's authority until that king returns. When God came into the world in the form of a man, in the form of Jesus Christ, when he entered into creation, he displayed his power in unmistakable ways to the people who are around him, to the people who read about him through his word. He calmed storms with his word. He healed people who were oppressed by diseases. Trees that were not performing their God-ordained duty to bear fruit withered at his touch. Creation recognized its king when he came and walked among them. The New Testament describes Jesus as the firstborn over all creation. The whole world is his rightful inheritance. It is his to claim by right. And the Lord of all creation uses that power not to elevate himself, but to actually come down in weakness, to save people who don't deserve it, who haven't earned it. He takes the punishment of our sin. He takes the weight of evil onto his mighty shoulders as he was put to death on the cross. And you know, the, the people who are around him as he died are feeling a wide variety of things. Some of them look like they're spiteful. Some of them are sad. Some of them are very confused. His followers don't know what's going on. But creation understands Creation knows what is happening to its king. There's an earthquake. Rocks are split in two as Jesus dies on the cross. Dead bodies are brought back to life and their graves release them out into the world. Nature knows what's happening to its king and it bears witness to him even as the people he came to save reject him. It understands that this is the most important event in history. And some of the confused people see this witness of creation, this ultimate witness of creation, and they respond by saying, surely, this must have been the Son of God. And then Jesus proves it further with his resurrection. The grave cannot hold him. The earth is his, and it cannot contain him. The death of this man, the Son of God, will bring about the end of sin and evil. God has guaranteed that through the work of his son. The penalty of death has been paid in full. That same Jesus who died on the cross would rise again three days later. He would ascend into heaven and someday he will return in glory to usher in a new creation. The firstborn over creation will return again and he will renew the created world to be what it was always designed to be. This is the picture we get of heaven. A new creation, not souls floating around in the clouds somewhere. It's a new creation. The psalmist closes this psalm in anticipation of that day. 
when the Lord will come and deliver his people and deliver his creation from evil. He's not okay with the existence of wickedness as he looks out at the world. He knows that as he praises God, it is right to long for God's goodness to overcome evil. He's aware of that reality. And someday it will. God has promised it. And until that time, creation is waiting in anticipation of that glorious day and it will no longer be under the effect of our sin. It will no longer be under the effect of evil. But by God's amazing grace, he still works to sustain his world. He doesn't abandon that vision that the psalm has. He does not leave the world up to the wickedness that infects it. He still creates beautiful things every day. He still joyfully provides for his creatures and for his children. He's making himself known through plants and animals and mountains and oceans. The world is beautiful even now. God is good to his creation even now. He is faithful to the world that he's made. He's a faithful creator. And he is worthy of our praise and he's worthy of our trust. Will you pray with me? Lord God, we thank you that you are mighty and that you are powerful, that nothing in this world is stronger than you, that you will have your way, and that ultimately you will conquer the evil that inflicts this world. We look forward to that vision. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.